Case file number 6.08. Internets before the internet. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one. The other one. Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector and the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Emir. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like, Victorian London, mm-hmm. back in Sherlock Holmes' time, okay. do you know how often they delivered the, the mail? How often they delivered the mail? Yeah, in London in, like, the 1880s, 1890s. I would imagine, like, every every other day every week 12 times a day oh shit really yeah i guess there were a lot more letters back then well it's six times a day in other in in other places Mm -hmm. so this is a point in time and the telegraph was also coming online at almost exactly the same time like they Mm -hmm. coincided and actually in some ways the mail was better like you could be faster with the telegraph but you would be more consistent and kind of constant with the mail Mm, right because mail was basically picked up every two hours or every hour or so, because they would run from like six to six or eight to eight or something like that. I forget. Uh, I, I didn't write down. They had the times in the article I was reading, <laughs> but I forgot to write it down in my notes. That's pretty um, crazy. Yeah. yeah. But it was just like almost every hour. So they would basically mm-hmm. set, send messages that weren't quite IMs, but they were they were structured in a lot of ways like emails more than letters that we think of back in in like old timey letter fashion. Right, right, like less like like penned letter from the the war front. Right, but like a paragraph or two, and it would end in return of post, which hmm. basically said, "Hey, I expect your response the next time the mailman comes by, or maybe the one after that." Right. So the telegraph network span basically all of England. And they had this royal mail system that was super efficient and going all the time. Mm-hmm. And this time period has been referred to as the Victorian internet. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've actually read uh, both of them referring to the mail system and the telegraph system this way, but it all happened at about the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, it was the first time the way that we communicate now because of what's available to us in the internet really happened. Right. It changed the paradigm of how quickly you could communicate with somebody asynchronously without actually going in and seeing them. Right. Yeah. So this episode is about the internet's before the internet. The world that we know today of the internet that the internet has enabled 
it's not the first time at least some of the aspects of it have come to pass. And we're going to talk about a couple of the, uh, a handful of the examples of that kind of thing happen. Right. Our first example is again in, in the UK that was developed in the late seventies, went online in 1979. It was called Prestel. It was owned by British telecom and it used the set top box and the phone lines. Mm, okay. So you had to pay for or lease the boxes. You had to pay the phone charges while you were using it. A lot of stuff was free. There were some paid, basically websites, they called the frames there, that were pay to use. They would be billed to like your, your, your phone bill. Mm-hmm. It had some functional problems because the phones in the 70s weren't the crystal clear ones we're used to today. Right, yeah. If you remember in the 80s, they would talk about crystal clear long distance. <laughs> because it was still a problem then. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, but we were using phones at that point in time at the kind of the very end of the line noise is still kind of a problem. Mm-hmm, world. Mm-hmm. So, so like that's, we can even uh, understand that, but like the error correcting technology wasn't really there. I mean, in the mo- part of what allowed modems to go faster and faster during like that early internet period, uh, and that just pre-internet period was better error correcting technology. Some of it was also mm. line cleanup. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that you could have used a 56k modem back when 300 or or uh, 1200 baud modems were the uh, were the standard. <laughs> just because the line the lines may very well not have been high enough quality to do it. At least not everyone. Um, so they had some problems that some actual problems with that. And so that slowed adoption, but also the price of the of the set and everything really slowed adoption. It didn't get the kind of market penetration that you might have expected. Such a cool new technology because they had BBSs and forums. They had electronic mail. They even had mm-hmm. a mail order mechanism built mm-hmm. in. But a very interesting thing happened in late 84, early 85 to Prestel. Okay. These guys... Robert Schifferin and Stephen Gold gained unauthorized access to Prestel. Schifferin managed to shoulder search at surf at a uh, trade show, a Prestel engineer typing in his credentials. Oh, the user ID was eight twos in a row. (laughs) And the password It's the same combination I have on my luggage. One, two, three, four. Good, good password. Early, hey, what is he typing in? Mm-hmm. The skill wasn't developed, but the password wasn't complex to follow either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so they were caught eventually, and um, they were convicted on the charges of the Forging and Counterfeiting Fitting Act and fined 750 and 600 pounds, respectively. Mm, okay. Now- a couple of things fi- we figured out at that point. A, there was no law against hackery. They had to figure out how to apply other laws to the problem. Right. And they didn't do it for financial gain. Mm-hmm. And they appealed on that basis. Makes sense. And they were acquitted. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so, and then the prosecution appealed the, the, the acquittal, but the acquittal was upheld. Mm-hmm. They were like, they didn't do it for financial gains. And the way that the statute is written, you can't charge them under these laws. Mm-hmm. 
And what that did was it led to the UK passing their Computer Misuse Act in 1990. Mm, okay. It has a lot of striking similarities to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in the US, in the US uh, in 1986. Mm-hmm. So the US one was about, oh, it was a few years, it was a handful of years before, but still actually after these guys did their thing. Um, right, right. And I didn't see anything that said this was modeled after that, which actually I've seen in, in stuff that I've read in the past on other stuff. Mm-hmm. They directly call it out. In fact, uh, I remember distinctly when we were talking about the Espionage Act, it was the US one absolutely followed the UK version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the attitude about computer misuse was kind of the zeitgeist at the time. And so they end up being very similar. Mm, Um, whether it's because that was just what everybody in the policy level was thinking at the time or somebody did crib from somebody else's own work it ended up them being very similar right Mm, one of the features one one of the criticisms of both the u.s version and the uk version is that there is no differentiation between what i like to call the the graffiti artists and the Mm -hmm. and the fraudsters and the criminals just doing it for for what is what was t- termed at the time joyriding versus malicious intent right it, there's there's no separation in those laws even though that was the whole basis of the acquittal of Shafreen and gold mm, right so that was kind of funny <laughs> <laughs> so there was hackery on the internet before the internet at about the same time a very similar system was put mm-hmm. in place in France, owned by France Telecom. I'm going to call it France Telecom. I know it's France Telecom or something like that, <laughs> but I don't know which vowels to drop because I don't speak French. Mm, right. <laughs> but funny thing, and I didn't real. I think this. I re- learned this recently, and it might be might have been from this research. I forget. But uh, France Telecom, they changed their name. They're orange. They're the. If you've been to Europe. The orange telecom telecom that's hmm. that used to be France tele, France's national telecom company. Okay, I didn't realize that. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was a startup or something when mm-hmm. I when I like I knew it participated in spectrum auctions and stuff like that, but I didn't realize. Oh no, they just changed their name. <laughs> New and hip, and it totally worked. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, never heard it before. So. They rolled it out starting in about 1980 in France. And again, this was like a over-the-telephone line terminal thing. Only this time, they did the, if you have phone service, we'll give you the terminal to mm. use with the phone service. Kind of like the set-top box in the cable companies. Mm. Um, okay. They made it cheap. I mean, the set-top boxes, you, you, they, they figured they could charge you something. But in this case, it was like, in order for you to use the service, we're going to make it very cheap for you to access the service. Right, right. So the thinking behind this actually was that um, there was an ad- a political attitude in France, which was a little bit more, had it had a, a, a greater value on social goods than mm-hmm. I guess we're used to here in the US. Um, and there was very much this attitude of, the government innovating technology to provide something better for basically everybody. Right, right. Not just here, but not just in this instance, but for for, for a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. So there was a political will, a, a, a national, a little bit of a national uh, uh, attitude that, that facilitated this. 
And they also kind of justified it, although I'm not sure the math works out on this. Maybe it did. Um, but it was originally intended to basically replace printing phone books. And it was hmm. hoping it was hoped that this would reduce the number of phone calls to operators so that they didn't have to put as many people on uh, running or answering operator calls. Right, right. It was a terminal. It was basically a text-based terminal. And you have to remember, the Commodore 64 came out in 1982. So this is right around that time. Mm-hmm. And it looked, the screenshots I've seen, there's a lot in common. This is kind of the state of the art, but really it was the state of the art. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was not like you're getting a beige box that could have been made with vacuum tubes kind of thing. This was <laughs> like, this is pretty slick. Um mm-hmm. So it was originally just a phone directory, but they really expanded the infrastructure rather quickly. Mm -hmm. They got the ubiquitous killer app, uh, electronic messaging. Um, There was like newspaper (laughs) stuff. You could do online purchases. They could do process credit card transactions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it really, in a lot of ways, it very much functioned like a pre-internet internet. internet. And it was just pre-internet. If you really think about it. So when they did this, they got something very much like a dot-com boom. They had mm-hmm. a lot of companies spring up to help companies integrate into the Mintel system. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a lot of, hey, if I can use this to to service my customers, I can expand and online-only services. Like a lot of new ideas and, you know, a non-trivial number of them failed. But Right, right, yeah. But I mean, that's also what happened to the dot-com boom that nobody mm-hmm. talks yeah, about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in about 1985, they the amount of traffic on Mintel or on Minitel was enough where they actually had to separate the traffic. They had to basically run two telco networks, hmm. one for the Minitel, one for actual phones, because right. it was just too much traffic. Wow. Yeah. The thing is, it kept going. It was entrenched because everybody used it. In mm. in 2009, there were 10 million users in France. Damn. Like, this was not a worldwide system. This was a France. This was a France. Right, and yeah. 10 million subscribers. They did end up killing it in 2012. Okay. Mm. And there's some argument, though, it doesn't look conclusive from what I read, I, I uh, that the existence of Minitel slowed adoption of the internet in france mm, yeah it's been argued but honestly the arguments versus like the economic analysis didn't feel super compelling no I don't know. I, from what i read but it didn't feel super compelling so i would say that that's at least not a definitive thing i mean like it kind of makes sense a little bit because yeah. like you know if something's working why go to the brand new untested thing well my view of adoption of technology it's like okay if you're invested in minitel because you're middle-aged like me mm. uh you're invested in the tech that you understand you're not still not the one who's driving new shiny stuff mm, yeah that's true so i can see it a couple of different ways i don't know that it's mm. definitive but i figure it was worth worth talking about right yeah, but yeah. one of the services that did boom during that time uh, on Minitel was uh, basically sexting messages on a laptop. <laughs> you, you could pay somebody basically to have email-based cyber sex with. Right. Um, sex is what drives pretty much everything. Yes. It's like, this is like another porn-driving technology and mm-hmm. also France way to play into your stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> 
But one of the things I wanted to mention about this was um, we talked about during the structure of the internet, the episode that we talked about the structure, the fundamentals and structure of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't remember the clever title I came up with for that. I'm, I'd be disappointed with myself if I didn't come up with a clever title, but um, uh, I think it was one network to rule them all. Now that I think about it. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, anyway. So I said in the very beginning of that episode that the big difference the big innovation was moving from circuit switching to packet switching. Mm-hmm. The internet, which was being developed very much in parallel to this, a lot of the original ideas about ARPANET were happening at the same time Prestel and Minitel were happening. And there were a few other networks like this that were out. These were kind of the bigger names and kind of the more interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were all circuit switched because they were all using direct phone communication. Right. And I'm theorizing here, but you can see how they didn't expand past their borders because they were tied to the telecoms they were in. They're all modem and phone based. Yes. So allowing for use, like expanding your network outside of your borders was not as easy. Mm-hmm. And by going to packet switching, you're decoupling the network infrastructure from what the endpoint has to do. Right. You just need to agree on the standards. You don't care if something significant changed in the way that your traffic is routed. Mm-hmm. You're always connecting to the same hub point and if and uh, the same ISP. And if that ISP changes providers, it doesn't matter to you as long as your service is as good or better. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that we don't end up talking about enough, but it really is a big deal. The U.S. was either through benign neglect or actual policy very much about getting everybody to participate in the United States version of the internet mm-hmm. in making sure that address space went out to non-US entities. Mm-hmm. Connectivity happened. The standards kept working. And in fact, uh, in the late 90s, and we talked about this some, there was a big push about getting the governance of the US, of the of the internet away from the US I think it was state department mm. I could be wrong I could be wrong about what department it was under but it was definitely under the US government as kind of this vestigial branch that the US tried not to mess with but there was always right. this fear that they could right yeah yeah exactly which is why we have um I can now but mm. like the fact that there is I can that the U.S. government was willing to give up that, you know, final bit of control. The, oh, if it, if things go completely wrong, I still have the keys at the top. Mm-hmm. They gave that up. And I don't think they're the only ones that would, but there's a lot of co- of governments that wouldn't. Yeah. yeah uh, in, enough of, out of just fear. So both the technology and the, atti- and the attitude of what the internet should be, idealistically or not, in the mid to late nineties meant that we had of a global internet. And if you look at some of these previous examples, you could see why it would be very hard for them to be multi-nation mm-hmm. at the very least, let alone worldwide. Yeah. yeah. And allowing for less developed countries to participate in them. Mm-hmm. Like Tuvalu, uh, the, the dot TV domain where they got to join the UN because, uh, because they, they let their domain be marketed. <laughs> that's such a great story 
Uh, so our last example is actually kind of funny because it's a run-in between like the pre-internet internets and our lovely sideline in CIA stuff. Ooh. So the network was called CyberSyn, and it happened in the early 70s in Chile. Hmm. In 1971, Chile elected Salvador Allende to be the president of Chile. Now, here's the thing that made things a little sticky right there. Mm. He ran as a Marxist. Among the things that he wanted to do, and he did do, was he nationalized some of the major industries that were owned by foreign investors. Mm. This is not an uncommon nationalistic thing. If... um, a nationalist government gets in place in a similar situation, legacy of colonialism. This is not an uncommon platform, if not deed. Um, right. But uh, it was done by a Marxist. So the CIA, and this was the Nixon-Kissinger administration. Mm-hmm. Nixon administration, Kissinger was the, the national security advisor. So right. like these are the guys we're talking about who are running the U.S. government at the time. Mm-hmm. Not exactly having a rep for being charitable in these instances. <laughs> Although part of the reason why was what happened in Chile. Um, mm, right. Yeah. Um, so like some of that hadn't happened yet. But so they nationalized a, a lot of means of production stuff, which any good Marxist would do. The thing is, the previous administration had these like 500 um, telex machines that they never used for anything. Okay. So what they did was they got an IBM supercomputer, an IBM, a 360 slash 50, if anybody cares. Um, And they got this UK expert on what they call, who was an expert in what they called management cybernetics, which is Mm. basically proto big data. Mm, Management by numbers, but by numbers, like, you know, constantly using updated numbers. Mm, mm, Put mm. these telex machines in all of the factories and mines, all of the major factories and mines all over the country. Okay. And connect them through the tele to, through the telephone system because they're telex machines, right? Um, and right, have right. them reporting into this supercomputer. And they had some of their own Chilean uh, native experts. They had this guy Stratford Beer. They had a few, uh, I believe it were uh, some Swiss programmers and stuff. So that, like they brought in consultants, they developed their own people. In a lot of ways, this is like a, a really good example of regardless of who did it of like a good adoption of technology of like cutting edge technology because remember mm-hmm. this is the early 70s um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like the very idea whether you're marxist or not of applying this kind of technology to be able to get up to the hour kind of data reporting rather than stuff that's a week old mm-hmm. was just ahead of its time right it goes in, if you think about it, with the Marxist ideas of central planning and stuff. So you can right. see how that dovetails together. But mm-hmm. like, even without the Marxist ideology, you can see that they were doing something that we in hindsight see as, yeah, that was a good way to go. And that was very forward-looking when they did it. So they had this system, and it, and it was actually working. They, they got written up in time and a few other places of, of, about how well this was working out how much of a boost this kind of gave the economy because they were able Mm. to really balance resource usage and they were never like they were able to make sure that 
their production facilities weren't lacking things that stuff that stuff wasn't piling up anywhere right they like they didn't have a like a resource balancing problem mm-hmm. they were able to address or more correctly they were able to address them very quickly uh right. you'll actually see if you go and look at any of the articles on this stuff there's this very like star trek 70s command center that they had with the with the with the cool 70s chairs oh really oh, that's the cool. futuristic looking terminals and stuff it's, <laughs> it's 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 like you see that and you and if you like if you watched the the loki mini series mm-hmm. you see like how they were doing everything and it's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. oh that's just the idealized you look at the picture and it's like oh places like this existed <laughs> um anyway so that's the happy side of the story. <laughs> Things go downhill from here. So in 1972, the trucking companies in Chile went on strike. And the stuff that I read and watched on this, it was the trucking companies that said, no, we're not going to ship anything. It wasn't mm, okay. like the drivers saying, we're not being paid enough. Hmm, okay. And it, the country ground to a halt. Like 40,000 truck drivers were on strike. Right. So- Using CyberSyn and 200 strike-breaking truckers, they were able to keep things rolling because they had enough information to to use the bare resources they had to keep things moving, to Mm. move things where to balance things out, to move things where they needed to go when things were getting critical and stuff. Okay, and they managed to by doing this by like riding the data and and sheer force of will, they managed to outlast the strike. And they broke the strike by 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 being able to do that. Okay. Now, the reason that the truck companies could afford to do that, now all the truck drivers got paid, is the CIA kind of made that strike happen mm. to make Allende look bad, so that he would so that he would lose in the next presidential election. Right. That just kind of didn't work. So in 1973, they made a, an actual coup happen. I mean, if at first you don't succeed. Yeah. Uh, so they put their plans in high gear um, and it was a military coup d'etat. Mm-hmm. I read through some of the stuff. Basically, uh, Augusto Pinochet, uh, who was general military, took mm-hmm. over the parliament, basically voted him in and told President Allende to step down. They surrounded President Allende's palace and Allende ended up committing suicide rather than surrender. Jeez. Yeah. All of the things that were seized by the nationalist government back. He did disassemble Cybersyn, by the way. Um, mm. Well, it, it wasn't clear if they had it disassembled, but the Chileans who were heads of uh, the Chilean head of the project was like, Pinochet isn't getting to touch this. Mm. Okay. So it, it did not survive the transfer of power, we shall say. Right, right. Um. Anyway, so I mean, Pinochet. This is one of those CIA things where it's like, yes, he was a capitalist. Theoretically, he came to power in a democracy, but they stopped having presidential elections. He was mm-hmm. in power for more than 20 years. Um, mm-hmm. The word uh, politicide, as in political genocide. Right. I don't know if it was coined for the for for his government, but it is attributed to his government. And the first times I'm seeing it occur in in anything were about that time. Cheers. So it might not have been coined for that specifically, but like that action, right? Like <laughs> tightly correlated. Yeah. 
Uh, you could see a lot of stuff if you look at kind of the Wikipedia. Well, I the, I read a, the Wikipedia and a couple other things, uh, just like an overview of the Pinochet government, because honestly, we're talking about cybersecurity stuff. I mean, my point really is that some of the stuff I read was that while he kept the industries, he opened up to foreign investment, uh, a lot of new permitting and stuff. Okay. Um, and essentially managed export policy the way that the U.S. probably wanted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, import export policy rather than stopping them from falling victim of the natural resource curse or what's uh, sometimes called Dutch disease, which is basically if all of your money comes from a natural resource and you're just buying exports with that, when that runs out or when it's not worth as much, you know, in terms of GDP, you're kind of boned at the end because you can't do anything else. Right. Yeah. That's just, that's, that's a very short summarization of the natural <laughs> resource curse. Mm-hmm. Um, so like he, he totally like not just lackadaisically fell into it, but his policies kind of leaned into doing that faster. And that's mm. what you do if you were a dictator that was making personal money on, on, on that through. Right. Yeah. So I'm talking about what the leaders did and how much they cared about the folks that they were ruling and like peaceful transfer of power and being able to get people out if they're doing things that 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 the public doesn't like not one was a marxist and one wasn't um kind of stuff but you can see that the cia putting somebody in power by force and this is not the first and only time we've seen this uh didn't do any favors to the country in the long term yeah yeah exactly but we're computer guys and i think the cyber sin saga looks extremely interesting from a early use of big data point of view how much a difference it seemed to have made with just hourly updates and a fairly rudimentary system 500 Mm -hmm. nodes a computer system that was uh less powerful than your phone (laughs) um right yeah versus what they were doing with telephones and letters and stuff made such a big difference that the world took notice Mm -hmm. and it wasn't the internet that we see that every person gets to use this was just using data to manage stuff across a country right so those are my pre-internet internets uh that i thought were interesting (laughs) enough to talk about nice find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the gibson on reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the wikimedia foundation or electronic frontier foundation